Hey everyone, this is Under the Surface, and you're tuned into Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM on your radio dial. We're also live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And I'm Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me today. Have you ever wondered what kinds of events or forces come together in a person's life to make them believe in God? Or how one arrives at a spiritual or religious path and feels convinced beyond a doubt that they've had an encounter with God or that they know the truth with a capital T? Now, I do realize as I'm asking these questions that the way I'm posing them reveals my own more distant, non-religious viewpoint. Because if I were truly a religious person, I'd pose the question more like this. How do people find God as if God were a given? And as if it was only a matter of us lost and wayward souls waking up to a higher being who's always been right in front of us, whether we recognize him him or not. But the fact is, I'm not a religious person and don't have a fixed notion of the truth or even a clear definition of what it means to be spiritual. That word spiritual gets thrown around a lot these days. Or the line, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And it, it makes me think of how people like to describe themselves in their online personal profiles for, you know, online dating sites. In my opinion, though, it's a way of saying I'm deep or I'm thoughtful rather than anything more specific than that. Well, my guest for today is Peter Duveen, and he has a much more definitive concept of his spiritual and religious beliefs. He also has an interesting story to tell about his eclectic spiritual journey, which runs the gamut from being baptized Catholic to getting his palm read, from Christian science to the Unification Church, and finally to his discovery of Yukio Moshima's Way of the Samurai, a commentary on the writings of a 17th century samurai. And most of his transformative experiences, including what he describes as a direct and personal encounter with God when he was only 17, happened when he was quite young, from his teens to his 20s. Peter was born in New York City and grew up in Park Slope, Brooklyn. His, his background is in teaching, journalism, theology, writing, physics, and math. Today he teaches math and physics and presents at math and STEM conferences. I met Peter through mutual friends more than 20 years ago, I believe, in New York City. I knew immediately that Peter was a very unusual and creative person because of his inventions. One was the Siberian Coffee Pipeline Company, which is purported to provide the world with freshly brewed coffee through an elaborate network of Siberian pipelines. The other was the Millennial Flexi Planner, which enables short-term and long-term planning and I mean very long-term planning, as in a thousand years or more. I'll never forget the look on people's faces when they stopped to peruse Peter's Millennial Planner on the street of New York City, where he used to display them. In the Millennial Planner, you flip through thousands of years past your own lifetime and realize how small and insignificant you are. The experience is quite shocking. I'll say that from my own point of view, too. Although Peter left New York City for upstate New York, he's still very connected to his Brooklyn roots through his ongoing art collection, which highlights often overlooked Brooklyn artists like Stanislav Remsky and explores cultural subjects of Brooklyn's past. And if you're thinking the name Duveen sounds familiar in the world of art, you're right. Peter's great-grandfather, Joel Duveen, founded the fine art and antiques trading firm Duveen Brothers with his brother Henry. His eldest son, Joseph Duveen, that's Joel Duveen's eldest son, Joseph Duveen, was Peter's great uncle. He was a famous art collector who put together many important museum collections, such as the one at the National Gallery. 
He also donated some medieval works to the Smith College Art Museum right here in Northampton. Peter's mother, Annetta Duveen, was herself an artist and sculptor. Peter now lives in Hebron, New York, a small farming community bordering Vermont with his wife and child. So, Peter, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being a guest today. Amy, thank you very much for having me here today. Peter, you were baptized not as a baby, but at the age of nine years old, which is quite unusual. Do you remember that experience? Um, Just vaguely, I remember around the time... uh, I guess it wasn't particularly eventful, the the baptism itself, but uh, I remember my feelings at that time, yes. So, I mean, why were you baptized so late? Did did your family convert to Catholicism? Well, my mother's family, my mother's side is Jewish. My father's side is half Lutheran, half Jewish. My father comes from a Jewish family. My, uh, I'm sorry, my, my grandfather comes from a Jewish family, and my grandmother on my father's side came from a Lutheran family. So I had a little bit of Christian Christianity. My mother is the one who uh, became interested in the Catholic Church, and later on she was baptized, and then I guess at the age of nine I was baptized along with my brother and sister. So your mother became a Catholic? Yes, she did. Okay. So you don't have a distinct memory of being baptized then? No, no. Okay. And as a kid, you read a lot about Catholic saints, and you also read the Gospels and the Bible. What inspired you to do that? Well, you're sitting in church. Actually, Bible reading was not really encouraged uh, when I was growing up in the 50s. They thought that people might read the Bible and uh, get the wrong idea. But I would be sitting there and uh, not really having much to do in church, so I would just look at all the Bible passages and read them, uh, you know, to keep the time flowing. And I really enjoyed reading them. And then I would also read about the different uh, saints, like St. Saint John of the Cross, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, and some of the other famous saints. And why do you think Bible reading wasn't encouraged? And That seems strange if it, you were in church. Well, it does. But, you know, the Catholic Church has a very uh, kind of strict dogma, and they, at that time, there seemed to be this fear that people would, uh, you know, stray from the teachings of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you read the Bible, you can draw many conclusions, and they may not all be uh, in the line of what the Catholic Church says. So at that time, I remember that they were not encouraging Bible reading. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. And you said that when you were 14, um, you told me you went to see a palm reader, what made you, de- and you even remembered her name, Florence Meschter. What made you decide to have your palm read, and what did you find out? Well, this was my mother's idea. She used to go to her quite often. My mother was very interested in, in uh, palm reading, also the I Ching, which is a kind of, uh, uh, you can use that as a method of trying to find out what's going on in your life by throwing dice or or yarrow sticks or something like that. So she encouraged me to go to the palm reader, and I finally relented, because I I really am not fond of fortune tellers. But (laughs) I finally relented, and I went. And um, I just thought, uh, she said I would marry very late in life. And then she also said, um, she said that, you know, if you're going to pray, don't make it complicated. Just pray to your father. Uh, and she didn't say Jesus or anything like that. It was just pray to your father, uh, say, uh, 
father. So do you think she meant God by father? Oh, I'm sorry? Do you think she meant God when she said? Oh, yeah. Yes, okay. <laughs> Not to and your own father. Okay. And um, so how do you look back on that experience? Was she correct in her assertions? Well, she was uncannily. Uh, I liked her approach to uh, God. I think that's very a very simple way to approach it because uh, I think a lot of theological issues block people from just praying. So uh, I think her approach in retrospect uh, was a good one. And it, was it true that you married late in life? I don't know if our, our listeners don't know that. So, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I married 10 yeah. years ago, and right. now I'm maybe 68. So Right. 68. Yeah. And why did your mother want you to go to a palm reader? That seems like an unusual thing to tell a 14-year-old, I want you to go to my palm reader. Uh, I, you know, I don't remember the details that much, mm-hmm. uh, but somehow she got me to go and uh, yeah. And um, you met some Christian scientists when you were 17 years old, and I think one of them was famous, uh, Dorothy Drew. I looked her up anyway. Dorothy and Lorna Drew. Tell me about them and what happened. Well, they were two sisters. Uh, One was an artist, the other was a concert pianist, and a child prodigy when she was younger. I guess when I knew them, they were probably in their uh, late 40s, early 50s, maybe. And... uh, uh, they were friends of uh, the family, and we would see them sometimes on Thanksgiving or Christmas. Uh, we would go over to my uh, my cousin Rhoda's house, and she would have them over as guests. And uh, so I got to know them. I got to know them about, you know, their Christian beliefs somewhat vaguely. They were sort of positive thinkers. They were both Christian scientists, although Dorothy drew smoked, and her, his, her sister Lorna was always kind of getting after her about that. Wait, what did you say she did? Drew smoke? Oh, she smoked, yeah. Dorothy Drew smoked. Oh, okay. Sister Lorna Drew was getting after her about it because Christian scientists are not supposed to smoke. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, they used to kind of give me little pep talks, and that was very encouraging. She used to say, you're living eternity now, and that was a very nice thing to hear. And uh, I was going through a lot at the time, so they were very nice. Were they, they trying? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. They lived right above Bryant Park in a townhouse in a. Uh, I'm sorry. In the, in the in the very top story, uh, where some famous uh, millionaire used to have his uh, house. So you said you were going through a hard time. Was it kind of like a, a period of depression? Would you say? There was depression involved, definitely. Mm-hmm. Loss. Uh, I was having my romantic troubles yeah. Mm-hmm. And so did these women try to convert you to Christian science? No, they did not. Mm-hmm. And did you feel at all compelled, though, to join the Christian Science Church at that point? No. Okay. And when you were 17, you, you said at that, that same year, when you were 17 years old, you had a direct, unsolicited encounter with God. Those are your w- words and quotes. I know this might be hard to talk about, but can, can you try to describe that experience? Sure. Uh, let me try. Uh, basically, I was not in a very happy mood uh, at that time in my life, and I remember I was kind of setting myself up in the evening in, my, in the kitchen of my home in Brooklyn, New York. It's kind of a townhouse, and the kitchen was at the back of the house, and I put on the radio, and I was listening to a uh, classical music station uh, that I was very fond of, 
and I was listening to uh, some of the Baroque, uh, French Baroque composers. Uh, the music is very, is beautiful in itself and very regal. And then, but I was still, uh, you know, very sad about my circumstances. And I said to myself, maybe there is no meaning to life. I said that to myself. And then, all of a sudden, uh, you know, just very gradually, the music started to become extremely beautiful mm-hmm. beyond what it ever was. It became, you know, magically beautiful. And then I started to look around me, and everything else became magically beautiful. This sort of happened, you know, gradually, maybe over five or ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I realized that something very important was happening, and I was coming into an audience with God. And uh, uh, this lasted for about five hours altogether. I'll try and make it, you know, not too long, but basically I, was, I suddenly realized what was happening. I guess I felt the presence of God, and I was wondering, well, why isn't God contacting my parish priest? Uh, he's the one who's supposed to be religious. Uh-huh. And God said, or the message that was conveyed to me was that the lights are turned off inside the Catholic Church. Wow. Now that is, and, and trust me, I'm not anti-Catholic in any mm-hmm. means. I'm just telling you that mm-hmm. is what the message was in answer to my request. Why isn't the parish mm-hmm. priest? Why isn't the parish priest getting the uh, the visitation? And uh, I also perceived that my sins had been forgiven. Mm-hmm. And so when you were wondering about why God didn't appear to the parish priest, did you ask those words out loud, or did you kind of think those, that question in your mind? Well, it's, it's think and ask. I thought and asked. It's kind of like, I guess, a conversation, mm-hmm. but it's hard to pin it down. And how did you hear the response? Uh, the same way, I guess, in a sort of an image of a, a darkened place, but also, you know, so fairly clearly, I guess, verbally, these are ideas that come back and forth, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. And what made you know so distinctly that you were encountering God? Um, I guess you just know, but uh, uh, later on I, I could understand that actually our, when we perceive beauty, uh, we're actually in a very, we're actually coming into the presence of God. Even if you're listening to music or hearing a poem and you feel the beautiful essence of that, mm-hmm. that, that in a very small, perhaps weakened way, you're actually experiencing the presence of God at the same time. Mm-hmm. Only since I experienced this very, very uh, robustly, then I could see the connection between God's presence and the perception of beauty. They kind of come together. That's interesting because, I mean, I've heard some people say, express the feeling that they feel manipulated by music because of the way that it can make you feel strong emotions and almost like a drug. So um, just, you know, to play, you know, the other side or how somebody might push back on on your experience, what would you say in response to that? Well, I would say that are we going to deny all art mm-hmm. for thousands of years as manipulative? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I would say probably not. Uh-huh. Well, 
Okay, well, um, then when you were 24 years old, you encountered the religious movement of the Korean-born Sun Myung Moon and got involved with the Unification Church. How did that happen? Uh, well, I was living in Albany at the time, and uh, I used to pass the, uh, the, the church center that they had in uh, downtown Albany somewhere, and uh, they advertised that they were giving lectures, and they had a little uh, kind of a message there, uh, Unification Church, One World Family, something like that. And so one day uh, there was someone out front, out in front of the building who invited me to hear uh, a presentation. So I uh, decided to go, since I had been thinking about it and passing that building uh, many times before and seeing their sign, I thought, well, it's a Friday. Let me go in and hear what they have to say. And what year was this? Was this in the 60s or 70s? Uh, by now, I guess we're talking about 1974. Okay. So you walked in? I walked in. Uh, they were given, giving some kind of presentation. I, I was a bit skeptical and reserved, uh, but I said, well, where is the book? Every group has a book, <laughs> so I just want to see the book. Right. So they showed me the book, and I looked at it, and I said, well, that looks very interesting to me. Uh, you know, I'll take it home and, and look at it more closely. And well, was that the divine principle, their scripture? That's right. It's called the divine principle, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so on, on looking at it, I found that it was addressing many of the important topics uh, that were in my mind, uh, such as, you know, uh, heaven and hell and uh, uh, things like that. And um, now I'm sure you realize that uh, Sun Myung Moon was an extremely controversial figure and that his movement was widely considered a cult, you know, otherwise known as the Moonies. Uh, people might remember him for the mass wedding ceremony or blessing ceremony he performed in Madison Square Garden in 1982 with thousands of couples. I read that there was another one he did with about 40,000 couples, and the fact that he was criticized for using the church for his own personal gain. I also learned that he had very conservative anti-homosexual views and that he supported the government of North Korea, Louis Farrakhan, and the Bush family in the United States. How do you respond to those criticisms, or do you, and, you know, what, what do you think of, of Reverend Moon in retrospect? Well, in retrospect, I think that he left teaching, which is quite amazing. Now, all of these particulars, I think, could be answered in one way or another. And, you know, once you get into a particular question, you can debate it back and forth. Uh, I'm not sure if we will. I'd be glad to answer all of them, but I'm not sure if you're going to have time. Or, uh, But what I'd like to emphasize is that Reverend Moon has passed on. Everybody has the ability to, you know, fish the book out of the Internet and look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's an amazing book in terms of the way mm -hmm. it clarifies uh, uh, Christian teaching and even going beyond Christian teaching to world religions. And he also claimed to be the Messiah, uh, the second coming of Jesus. Do you believe he was the Messiah, as he claimed? Well, um, you know... That's also a controversial topic, which I, I really don't feel that I'm at liberty to judge. I don't like to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Messiah is a very kind of mixed word. It can mean many things to many people. 
I would say that each person should, you know, examine that issue if it's important to them on their own. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not that fixated on it. Okay. So it sounds like you're more focused on his teachings on the actual book than on him as a person. Would you agree with that? You know, to some degree that's true. Uh, not that you could absolutely separate the two. You can't. But mm-hmm. uh, the teachings are what is important. You have to remember, for me, I believe that people have autonomy. And if a teaching is good, uh, they should be able to kind of incorporate that teaching or use it on their own, not uh, slavishly uh, following a particular person. That, that would be very uncomfortable mm-hmm. to me. And I think I remember you telling me that as a follower of Reverend Moon, you had to raise a large amount of money for the Unification Church. Is that true? And did you actually sell flowers in an airport like his other followers were known to do? Yes, I did. I can't say that I raised a lot of money because I was, you know, a very good fundraiser. But I did have uh, a lot of experience uh, rushing into restaurants with buckets of flowers and uh, uh, until I was chased out and <laughs> doing many other uh, kind of things that would be very confrontational. People would not like to do them. And in, in a way, I didn't like to do them. Uh, but I actually learned a lot through that experience and uh, uh you know, there is something valuable there. And do you have any criticisms of Reverend Moon? Um, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not terribly focused on the criticisms because overall it has been or had been or has been a very, you know, it mm-hmm. had helped me. Uh-huh. I also suffer from a, a malady, which I was sort of over the years, uh, you know, cured of it. It wasn't a sudden cure or anything, but I gradually grew out of it in that movement, and I was very happy that that happened. Uh huh. Was that malady, the depression that you referenced before? Yes, it was. It was that and other things. Uh huh. So you felt that abating as you got involved. And are you still involved with the Unification Church? Well, right now there are different uh, pieces of the movement after Reverend Moon passed on, uh, and I haven't aligned myself with any particular, uh, you know, part of the movement at this point, but uh, I do still recognize the value of his teaching. Yeah. I mean, I've read that um, his followers have difference of opinion and d- different degrees of involvement. Um, and I'm wondering, how, d- how did the Unification Church teachings, um, you know, the divine principle scripture, inform your current beliefs? Well... It definitely put to rest certain, um, certain like the role of Jesus. Who is Jesus? I think this is a big question that people must have. Uh, he's supposed to be the Savior. Some people believe he's God. Uh, it makes it, it's an extremely confusing issue, and he brings some very simple clarity to that issue and resolves it in a way that makes sense. So, uh, I. I don't have to think about it that much anymore. It doesn't bother me that much. And I think that's uh, very helpful to me. I'd rather not go over the territory over and over again in my mind. Mm-hmm. Where it's important. Well, do you want to say, I know, I guess it's a big concept, but do you want to say briefly what what uh, the what is the important point that you took from that, you know, that you're referring to? Yes. He, he explains, or according to his teaching anyway, Jesus is a man. Jesus was not, uh, he's not like billions of years old, born with God. Jesus was conceived by two physical parents and was born. Mm 
but his lineage is important, and because of his lineage and the events that happened in his lineage going back, uh, according to Reverend Moon, he was free from what they call original sin. Uh, there's a doctrine of original sin in Christianity, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, oh, yeah, we know. Yeah. So, so that is the main point. So he did not believe in Immaculate Conception? Uh, n- no, he did not believe in the virgin birth. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Are you involved in the actual um, church in terms of, or in any church in terms of a congregation now? I try not to be. I'm not, and I try not to be. I, I found that I don't like the idea of a pastor who thinks he's better than anyone else. Uh, and, you know, pastors tend to be like that, and they they look for needy people, and if they don't find a needy person, they'll try and make you a needy person, and that's pretty dangerous. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of uh, staying away from uh, churches which are structured mainly in that way. But what about the community of church? A lot of people belong to, you know, a church or a synagogue because of the community, um, not just because of the person, the leader. Uh, I don't find that the the churches that I've gone to, I don't find that they're really set up the way I would like them to be. I haven't gone to, say, uh, I haven't gone to a lot of churches, so I can't make a blanket statement about all of them, but I've gone to enough so that uh, they're not really, uh, they're just not set up Mm -hmm. to, to, uh, you know, put the importance on each individual. That's what I feel. Mm -hmm. There's a hierarchy. Yeah. And um, back to Reverend Moon's, like, blessings that he had, or, or what's known as the mass weddings, did you participate in any of those? I did, uh, but my, my participation didn't really work out that well. Um, I, uh, it, you know, just sort of fell apart for one reason or another. But you actually attended, uh, and you married somebody through his ceremony? Uh, let me think. Yes, I did. As I recall, wasn't it that, like, you, it, the person wasn't there, but it was a photograph of a, of a person right. you were marrying yeah. who you'd never met. Is that right? That's right. And so, and you, how did that work? Did, did Moon choose these pairs, like, who to partner for these weddings? Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> did he know anything about you and the other woman to make that decision? Uh, mm, hard to say. He... Uh, felt that he had a spiritual intuition and that he could look at people and size them up and then uh, match them uh, and they would be compatible or they would be able to work out their uh, difficulties together. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you feel going through that process? Uh, you know, personally, um, it's a very fretful process and... Uh, I don't think I would do it again. Mm -hmm. I would, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm not really into uh, having someone choose my mate. And in your situation, why did it fall apart? Was it that the person was not the right person for you? Uh, The the woman's uh, parents had very strong objections. And, uh, you know, they created a situation in which we couldn't really resolve our differences. Uh Uh, So we we just... uh, you know, parted ways. And while you were involved in this, and you know, uh, at the beginning or throughout, I mean, were you aware of what people were saying about the Unification Church and the critiques of it? Well, I was. 
there was a great deal of hostility. It, it wasn't there at first because I joined the movement in 1974, uh, and his big important speaking engagements happened uh, sort of late in that year. So uh, there wasn't a lot of hostility. In fact, there was a sort of friendly atmosphere, but the atmosphere eventually did kind of turn hostile, and I was very much aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess you don't really want to get into the nitty-gritty of the idea that maybe his followers were... Um you know, raising money or that in some way he was using the church for personal gain because maybe you don't necessarily agree with that? Uh, well, here's the thing. He was doing some big things. He needed a lot of money. But the, the fundraising is also training for members. It was really not uh, just a means of making money. I think what Reverend Moon wanted to do is give lots of people a, a compact monastic experience where they really had to deny themselves in, in a very, uh, under very difficult circumstances. And going through that over, say, four or five years uh, can be a means of development for a person. Mm -hmm. And that's what it did for me. And I could go into detail, but uh -huh. I think the show is not that long. <laughs> okay. Um, and also, uh, um, my understanding is that his preachings or in the Divine Principle talks, that it talks about returning to the um, Eden in a way or the Edenic state, yeah. not sure how you would pronounce that, is, and, and that's, that's through kind of family. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. uh, what he, basically, he sa what he says, and it's uh, also a very important point, he says that God did not want Adam and Eve to, uh, you know, disobey his word. God gave that word to warn them not to do something. So his intent was that they mm -hmm. do not do whatever that was supposed to be. Uh, and he gets into very specifics. He gets into specifics about exactly what it was. Uh, basically, he says that uh, Lucifer, who tempted them, uh, now, please don't hold me too strictly to what it says in the Bible. It says the serpent mm -hmm. was an angel who tempted Eve into a sexual relationship. Oh. Okay, so he gets very specific. And therefore, in a sense, this can be, we can see that this can be a very destructive element in families today. If it happened at the very beginning of humankind, it can leave us, you know, getting off on the wrong foot as, uh, as humanity. And so he basically, this is sort of what he, oh, I'm sorry, let me put it this way. He says that the goal of humanity is still to achieve what God wanted Adam and Eve to achieve, which mm -hmm. was a pure marriage and a good uh, and good descendants. Uh huh. So, according to Moon, um, really, Eve was the one who was sort of seduced uh, through a, and got involved, you know, in a sexual relationship outside of the marriage. So it was like a woman who gave in to lust, and that caused the fall. Uh, you know, just to call it lust hard to know mm -hmm. uh, that we know that there are many ingredients to why a person forms a relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but yeah, she mm -hmm. was the first. And then she, uh, in her effort to uh, return to God, uh, and I'm just talking about the teaching now, uh, seduced Adam. So Adam also uh, kind of, uh, you know, fell under her spell. 
Uh huh. Interesting. Well, it is sort of similar to the traditional, you know, teaching or the one that I've heard about, you know, Eve succumbing to eating the apple and that kind of thing, although yours involves a sexual thing. So what I'm wondering also, though, is what, like, did he explain why God would give human beings free will, uh, if only to say that, you know, they were never supposed to use their free will? Yes, he goes into great detail, an important detail about that, because it's a very important point. He says it's not free will that actually uh, brought about the human calamity, but it is it was a force coming from, because oh, this is why, because free will is in pursuit of good results. Mm-hmm. Hmm. He says that it was some force coming outside, namely the serpent, oh, okay. Adam and Eve to go uh-huh. off the track. I see. But it's interesting, because if it weren't for that, how would there be more generations, and how would all of humanity have come to be? if uh, they didn't ever have a sexual relationship to produce children? Well, well the idea is that he says that if, if, if Adam had not followed Eve's temptation, then they could have set up a situation where, you know, everything might have been resolved. Oh, so there would still be sex, but not um, in a sort of evil way through Lucifer? Something like that. That's right. In other words, they could have separated themselves from that act and healed it, and then maybe they could have had a family. Some kind of innocent, or his idea, notion of innocent sex versus non-innocent. Something okay. like that. All right, well, that's interesting. Well, we're going to pause here for a little break. We'll hear a beautiful song Peter picked out by Judy Collins from 1963 called The Dove. Then a few announcements. Stay with us, everybody. The dove, she's a pretty bird. She sings as she flies. She brings us glad tidings and tells us no lies. She drinks the spring waters for to make her voice clear. When her nest she is building and summer is near. Come all you young fellows, take warning by me. Don't go for a soldier, don't join no army. For the dove she will leave you, the raven will come. And death will come marching at the beat of the drum. Come all you pretty fair maids, come walk in the sun. And don't let your young man ever carry a gun. For the gun it will scare her and she'll fly And then there'll be weeping by night and by day. The dove, she's a pretty bird. She sings as she flies. She brings us glad tidings and tells us no lies. She drinks the spring waters to make 
her voice clear when her nest she is building and summer is near. And we're back. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface on Valley Free Radio. WXOJ Northampton at 103.3 FM. I'm Amy Landau, and my guest today is Peter Duveen. We're discussing his personal spiritual journey and religious beliefs. So, Peter, when you were 29 years old, you stumbled upon a book called Way of the Samurai by Yukio Yoshimashima, a commentary on the writings of a 17th century samurai, and you said this book had a big impact on you. Can you explain that? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I found the book uh, on a bookshelf and started looking at it. But actually, uh, it was through this, uh, you, uh, I mentioned training and fundraising, uh, you know, for the church. I was a fundraiser for the church. Uh, and uh, through different experiences I had, uh, I then, uh, I guess my spiritual acumen had been sharpened. And then I did pick up this book, and it was sort of an encapsulation of what I felt I had learned through my fundraising experience. Uh, so it was sort of like my own personal scripture that described uh, a lot of my own personal beliefs uh, that I had acquired through my fundraising experience. And weren't some of those beliefs to do with, um, you know, living each day as if it might be the last or that you could die at any moment. I seem to remember you talking about that. Oh, yes, that's very true. I mean, the samurai have a a kind of great ethic in that way. Uh, We always like to think that our actions are going to have a positive effect, Uh, but actually we could do something, and we, we often notice that they have, like, the reverse or a negative effect. And, but we don't like to think while we're doing something that it's going to have that negative effect. But we should consider that. Uh, personally, I feel, this is what the samurai say, uh, more or less, that you, know, you should consider that your actions may lead to your death, and you should think about that. That your own actions might lead to your own death? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Now, um, do the samurai people also c- commit harikari? at times or suicide? Uh, they do, and it's very interesting uh, because uh, Yukio Mishima did. Oh, really? Uh, oh, that's right, a, I remember that. Yeah, he had a staged suicide. It was a big deal, and uh, a book has been written about that, uh, and films have been made about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, Yukio Mishima is writing a commentary on, a, on another book, an older book, Right, and the gentleman who wrote this older book of wisdom, he did not commit suicide because uh, he was going to, and his uh, superior forbade him to. Mm-hmm. So he didn't. Uh-huh. And, and what? Uh, yeah, go ahead. So it's a metaphor in this case, and he talks about suicide or committing seppuku, but it is uh, to, uh, my interpretation that is that it is a metaphor in his, in that case. Yeah. Uh, what is it a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for, for death. It's a metaphor for death because the outcome of your action could be your own death, and that could happen at any time. And so, uh, especially if you're a soldier, you're particularly aware of that. But that's very true of all of our actions and everything we do 
uh, in daily life. Okay, I don't fully understand. Um, what is a metaphor for death? The actual well, committing of suicide? Committing suicide, yes. But that is actually killing yourself, so you are, it's not a metaphor, it's real. Uh, it is real, yes, but it is a metaphor for something more uh, symbolic, uh, which is kind of like uh, offering yourself. Oh, okay. So do you think that, um, I mean, what is your view on actual suicide, though? And is it something, is it in keeping with the Unification Church beliefs? Right. Unification Church would never sanction a suicide, would never mm-hmm. approve of a suicide. Uh-huh. Uh, however, people, it does happen to people, and, uh, well, I know, for instance, Yukio Mishima, he was, uh, he made this dramatic suicide. I don't want to judge mm-hmm. him. Uh-huh. I, would, I would never recommend people do that, but at the same time, I think uh, there are many complex circumstances, and it's very easy to judge a person and say, you know, uh, I think the conventional belief in Christianity is that that person is going to hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should, I think we should stop short of that. And so you don't have um, a negative view of suicide? Uh, it's not that I don't have a negative view. I, it's that I just don't want to pass judgment. Right, right. That's uh, what I mean. And I can't say, you know, for each individual circumstance, and the circumstances vary. So it's uh, possible to still be, uh, fall, uh, like, believe in God and be, uh, you know, uh, a righteous religious person, but also commit suicide? Uh, that I... I cannot say, I, you know, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm not an all-knowing person. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, I was just curious because it is very different from, you know, the, like you pointed out, it's very different from the teachings of Moon and Unification Church. Um, so I was, you know, curious right. about how you, uh, how you interpreted it. And you used to talk to me a lot about something you called your incursions. Do you remember the, when you used to use that word, incursion? Oh, incursion, yeah. Yeah, and you said it was a sort of invasion that upset your equilibrium and got right. under your skin through different in- interactions. Can you explain more about what you meant by that? Well, I think there are people who, uh, you know, are, like to dominate other people. And when they do, they create an unwanted presence in your psyche, and that's very disturbing. And I really try to avoid relationships that, that do that. Uh, perhaps this is a failing of my own, that I'm vulnerable to that sort of thing. But at the same time, uh, I do try and avoid that type of relationship because it creates an unwanted presence, like an incursion, and it disturbs my psyche. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. want that to happen. Uh-huh. And uh, back to you know your encounter with God and your belief in God, one of my problems with the concept of God in the traditional sense is not only the human-like portrayal of him as a jealous God, for instance, you know, in the Bible, but also this gender bias attributed to him as a him. When I say God, you know, I still kind of picture a grizzled man with a long white beard on a big throne in the sky, and that's not what I really, that's why I can't accept at least that concept. So what is your image of God? Well, I don't have an absolutely clear image in that respect, but I will say that Reverend Moon addresses this point, and he he mentions that uh, God has both a masculine and a feminine aspect, uh, but that in relation to his creation, he is sort of the male subject, and the creation is the 
feminine object. Uh, but he also says that when these two, two uh, positions or situations uh, have a relationship with, with each other, that it's male and female, that there's a kind of rotational aspect in which they both revolve around each other. So the total subject-object, uh, the total dominating theme it, uh, does not really, is not what really persists, but it's a kind of harmonious relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. That's what he would say. So, but does he refer to God as a he, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I felt a sense, um, and I was thinking about what you said about um, beauty, and, you know, it's interesting because I felt a sense of spiritual connection also, you know, in beautiful places, particularly surrounded by nature, you know, usually while wandering around on my own. And is that something you've experienced? Uh, yes, it is. And, you know, uh, it's not just through nature. I experience a lot through art, through music in particular, uh, you know, even through films. And, uh, you know, I think uh, aesthetic experiences are, are there for everybody to appreciate. Uh, so, yes, I do, and, and nature as well. Mm-hmm. And um, you had that encounter with God when you were only 17. Have you had any other encounters since? Uh, not with that particular depth. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think about that you'd like to, you know, that you hope happens? <laughs> Well, the thing is, it, it, it's very complicated. I don't like the idea of making the demands of God, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> that, that that will satisfy my whim. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, I had that encounter with God, and it was very important to me. And uh, uh, but I don't, uh, you know, mm-hmm. right? Not you don't want to press press him or her. Yeah. Uh, what are your spiritual practices today? I mean, in terms of, you know, daily behaviors. Yeah, well, I like to start the day with prayer. And uh, when things get really crazy, I like to fast. Mm-hmm. And I found that fasting is very important. Uh, you'll find it in all the religions and all the scriptures. And it, it's a very important tool for people to get a hold of their uh, uh, mental competence and sanity. I found it to be very helpful. Uh, people, you know, I usually fast for a particular time period, maybe 40 hours mm-hmm. or wow. three days or something like that. Uh, and if I have something really bothering me, I may have to fast several times. Uh, mm-hmm. But actually, it is capable of curing some of the maladies that I have suffered along the years. And, and there have been many, and I think we all really suffer a lot. And uh, do you drink fluids while you're fasting? You no, would have to. Water. Oh well, okay, water. You die otherwise if you didn't. Okay, yeah. and um, that's interesting. So, well, um, I think this is my last question. Um, I know that you're very interested in art and the lives of artists. I mentioned in the introduction that you've been collecting, you know, the work of Brooklyn artists like um, Stanislaw uh, Remsky. Um, is there a link between your fascination for artists and art and your spirituality? Uh, hmm. Well, I think, you know, there's the creative impulse. And our creative impulse uh, takes us in many different directions. And we always want to keep it alive because it's so important for us. You know, it's important for us to have something positive uh, in our lives that, that pushes us forward. And, 
I think we all have our own interests and our own uh, kind of take on this creativity. I would say that my religious practices help to keep my creativity alive and not dominated by negative, uh, negative. I don't like to say feelings, mm-hmm. but say negative influences. I see. So yeah. in that sense, if it clears the board and helps me to have those creative thoughts and uh, impulses, then I'm very happy. And um, you talked about prayer, and I'm just curious because I, wa- I think that people probably interpret prayer in different ways. What, do- what does prayer mean for you? Well, it, you know, you'll hear the same definition. It's a conversation with God, and um, you'll hear it from many different religions. And really, in a sense, that's uh, getting back to Mrs. Meshner, Meshter, who is the palmist. That's what she was, I think, trying to tell me. And I think if people want to pray, they shouldn't worry too much about the fact that they might be saying a lot of nonsense or repeating whatever they're saying over and over again. They should just try it. And, uh, you know, I usually try and do my prayer in time periods for various reasons. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that basically that's what it is. It's simply mumble something. You know? mm-hmm. And you speak and, out loud. I speak out loud. Uh, it's better for me to speak at least in a whisper, some verbalization mm-hmm. for me, yes. And it's, so it's not necessarily that you're on one knee or hands clasped together? Uh, no, I don't clasp my hands necessarily, uh-huh. although some people say it's important. Uh-huh. And uh, who knows, maybe it is, but I don't do that. Uh-huh. And um, you mentioned, have, we do have a, a few more minutes, you mentioned heaven and hell before. Um, what is your belief about that? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Uh, I believe that you can have really nasty experiences here on this planet that make you feel very bad. And that, to me, is what hell is. Okay, so and, hell is on Earth. Well, it's on Earth, and, and we, you know, if, if life continues in, in some form after our physical death, we may bring those nasty feelings into the other world, and that would be pretty hellish, too. So you do believe in an afterlife? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. And so you haven't talked much about Jesus. Is Does Jesus figure into your beliefs, or is it more just God? Uh, Jesus has a sort of historical interest to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really uh, uh, pay too much attention to the spiritual side of Jesus. Uh, basically, uh, uh, I'm more interested in, in God, and uh, it's a very complicated issue with Jesus. It, it doesn't really have much value added for me, but for some people, I suppose it does. So you don't necessarily think of Jesus as the Son of God, or as something other than a historical human? Uh, only, in a, only in a historical sense would I, you know, and in, in this sense, the, the unification uh, teaching does clarify a lot of points. But and I think Reverend Moon uh, was sort of close to Jesus, but uh, I'm not in the same space. I don't. Uh, I don't really uh, get too much out of that. Mm-hmm. And do you find that you learn from other um, teachings that are outside of the Unification Church? I mean, you already mentioned the way way of samurai. Um, are there other things that you've learned that have resonated with you? Well, when I was a high school student, I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I think that had a lot uh, uh, to offer. Um, I can't say exactly specifically right now, but I do remember reading that. I read uh, Christopher Isherwood's book on Vedanta. 
I I have read some other things that were inspiring, mm-hmm. but uh, not as much as mm-hmm. uh, I found the uh, Way of the Samurai. Uh huh. Okay. Well. Um... I think we've come to the end of the show, and you've been listening to Under the Surface. I'm Amy Landau, and I've been talking to Peter Duveen about his spiritual experiences and religious beliefs. Although, Peter, is there anything more that you wanted to add that maybe uh, we didn't touch on? No, really, uh, I could. we could talk for hours about this, but I think you've covered a lot of ground, and, and yeah. it's been a terrific interview. I, I really appreciate it, Amy, and thank you. Yeah. having me on your show. Well, thanks so much, Peter, for being a guest. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thanks for being so open and honest about this. And thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next Sunday at 12 noon. I'm going to close out with a very appropriate song for this day after the first snowstorm here in the Pioneer Valley. This is by one of Peter's favorite composers, Jean-Baptiste Lully. Am I saying his last name right, Peter? Lully, I guess. Lully, Lully, okay. Who is the court composer for Louis XIV of France. It's from Les Divertissements, let's see if I can pronounce this, Les Divertissements de Versailles, and it's called L'hiver qui nous tourmente, which means winter that torments us. Enough said. Malheureux 
les habitants d'une demeure affreuse connaissaient du chinois le finesse courroux par sa vengeance rigoureuse. Vous voyez une malheureuse qui souffre cent fois plus que vous. Vous voyez une malheureuse qui souffre cent fois plus que vous. Par quelle peine de me tromper les limites de l'enquête dans l'horreur des frimas Vie a changé de tourment, passant d'autres climats. Oh, quelle peine! Oh, quelle peine! 